0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes the esteemed Dr. Edward Tronick for part one of their conversation on his new book, The Power of Discord, co-authored by Dr. Claudia Gold. Part 2 will be released on Tuesday, November 24th, and a two-part conversation with Dr. Gold will follow on December 1st and 8th.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm Karen Doyle Buckwalter, your host, joining you from here at Chadock. Well, today we have an interview with a very well-known person in the field of attachment. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Ed Tronick. Many of you are familiar with his famous experiment paradigm called the Still Face Paradigm, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him now. Dr. Tronick is a developmental and clinical psychologist. He is a university distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, is director of the Child Development Unit and research associate in newborn medicine, a lecturer at Harvard Medical School, an associate professor of both Graduate School of Education and School of Public Health at Harvard. Wow, he is a busy guy. He also, along with several other colleagues, created the Infant Parent Mental Health Postgraduate Certificate Program at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. He has developed the Newborn Behavioral Assessment Scale and the Touch Points Project with T. Barry Brazelton. He also, as mentioned earlier, developed the Still Face Paradigm. And he's continuing to work on um, another assessment with Barry Lester called the Network Neurobehavioral Assessment Scale. Uh, he has a particular research interest area in the effects of maternal depression and other affective uh, disorders on infant and child social and emotional development, and continues to do research and study in that area. He has published more than 200 scientific articles and four books and several hundred photographs. He's appeared on national radio and radio television programs. And his latest book, which is part of what we're going to be talking about today, is co-authored with Dr. Claudia Gold, who's a pediatrician. The title of the book is The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships are the Secret to Building Intimacy, Resilience, and Trust. So stay tuned, Dr. Tronic. We'll be here in just a minute. Hello, everybody, and I am here with my guest today for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, Dr. Ed Tronic. Dr. Tronick, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Pleasure. Thank you.
1: Yes. So, you know, what we're going to be talking about in part is your new book, The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships are the Secret to Building Intimacy, Resilience, and Trust. So, and it's, you know, we'll get into it further, but it's overall a really hopeful book and uh, really kind of got my wheels turning about how we think of um, relationships and resilience and all of that, which we'll get into. But um, I want to start out, of course, many of our listeners know that you're like the still face guy you know the guy that came up with that paradigm and and that has now gone viral on YouTube and I want to visit some of that in the introduction to your new book um you know that that wasn't something that you just sat down one day and thought I mean it, it was but there were experiences you had leading up to that working with Harlow, uh, working with T. Barry Braselton. So could you share a little bit of that early history? Cause I found that a fascinating aspect of the book. Um, like I was like, wow, Harry Harlow. Okay. So could you share just a little of that early history that contributed to your ideas about this?
2: I, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, I've been, um, uncannily lucky, um, to have had just wonderful experiences during my career, starting at the very beginning. So I was at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which at that time was known as the uh, Dust Bowl of Empiricism. It it has changed some since then, uh, but it was very, very experimentally oriented. And I was interested at that time in perception about how we literally see the world Um, and i was primarily an experimentalist and there are a number of questions in perception in the field of perception that had to do with things like nature nurture when do uh, when do we begin to see the world in three dimensions when do we um, appreciate different colors and um given those questions most of the work up until that time where a lot of the work had been done on adults and I felt like it was really necessary to start looking at infants because after all infants if we could follow them if we could figure out how to study them that we would be able to answer a question about when do you begin to see three dimensions or a study that I did later on is how big is the infant's peripheral field so I was thinking about doing infants, but essentially no one was really doing infants. But down the block from the psychology building was uh, Harlow's lab. So I thought, not knowing anything about monkeys, whatever, um, I thought, well, I could do it on baby monkeys. Uh, I very quickly learned that I couldn't do what I wanted to do on Baby monkeys. Um, but the experience of being in Harlow's lab and with another professor at that time, uh, Jim Sackett, um, was f- unconsciously at that time kind of formative because they were doing all the work then on surrogate mothers, separation, attachment. Uh, and so I was in that environment. Now, it didn't particularly interest me that time because I had my own things to do. So I went ahead and did my um, dissertation and I did it on four and five-year-olds. Um, and um, the first, so there, there's Harlow and his lab. And then the next real break, which was amazing was, well, I was a first year graduate student. Jerome Bruner came to Wisconsin, and he used the word mind. And at Wisconsin, the word mind was never uttered. It would be like a four-letter word. Um, And being the person I was, I sort of cornered him at the cocktail party afterward and talked to him, talked to him. And the next morning, my advisor said, how would you like to go to Harvard, when you're done, I'm a first-year graduate student.
1: Right. I'm, re- I'm reading this in the book, and I'm like, what? What? Man, you must have really said something, uh, or given a very s- something w- about you must have been so interesting to him, but keep going. But, uh, so.
2: <laughs> well, Jerry Bruner was really brilliant, really, really brilliant, and but he was also absolutely approachable and open and listening and um maybe maybe the cocktails at the party helped but anyway the next morning I'm asked if I want to do a postdoc at Harvard when I finish um at the end of my second year I asked my advisor I said is this postdoc thing real and he said oh yeah and I wrote to Bruner and he said so when are you coming
1: Wow. So you're, you're sitting there thinking, ah, was this just something he said in passing as a party? Is it, He's not really going to invite me but to Harvard. He,
2: he really meant it. Um, and so after my third year, I finished up my, my dissertation and I went to Harvard and it was a mix of really terrific people, including um, Colwin Trevorthan, if you can imagine, and Barry Brazel. And I started doing work with um, both of them. And I was still interested in um, perception. So I did some visual studies while I was there about head and eye movements in babies and about size of the peripheral field. I did a study which actually, in retrospect, predates the still face experiment where I did looming objects at infants. I did shadows. I I didn't really do real objects. Um, And, you know, when you move closer, like covering my face, or like doing it to you, it's it's like something's approaching. I did that study, um, and we showed that infants reacted defensively to the approach of the object. So we interpreted it as the infants were responding to the threat of the still face, uh, not of the still face, right? But the threat of the object. Yes. But in fact, if you jump ahead to the still face, you begin to think, oh, it's the same sort of question. What does it mean to the infant to see a looming object? What does it mean to an infant to see a parent, the mother or father, uh, not reacting to it? And in both cases, I think there's a sense of threat on the part of the infant. Something in the looming object that something's gonna hit me in the still face, it's some kind of threat and violation of their understanding of the world. And the way, the way I got to think about social interaction, given that um, you know, I, I was really an experimentalist. I was in the most you'll appreciate this the most academic of the academic fields at that time. So, you know, I was studying perception. I was studying what we now call neurosciences, but we didn't have neurosciences then.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And there's Barry Brazelton who says, um, "What about social interaction? What's going on with that?" And Cohen Trivathan is thinking. About So I got involved in um, one of the landmark studies that Barry and Mary Main and Barbara Kozlowski published. But Mary Main was then a graduate student um, in which he talked about reciprocity. And I helped him a lot with the coding and things like that. Um, And it was just fascinating to see what the infants were capable of during these interactions. And they were all, all things that we, I, as a perceptionist, had no idea that infants would be capable of doing these kinds of things. But there was a second experience, which was, this was in 1968, 69. 69. So, you know, I'm a newly minted, PhD in developmental psychology from Madison, Wisconsin. I think I know everything in the world. I know everything about development. And I go to work as part of the sort of political activity um, at an infant daycare center in a community, um, a, a housing project in Boston. And the center is an infant daycare center. So we have infants there as young as a month or two months, or up to about two and a half, three years of age. And what became clear to me was I had no idea about how critical social engagement was to the infants and how they were functioning. Not everything was visual in the infants, that their relationships with the people in the center were critical. Um, not necessarily in terms of what we now talk about in terms of attachment, but just their interaction, what Barry Brazelton would talk about in terms of reciprocity and the back and forth of interactions. Uh, And those two experiences, I think, solidified uh, what became, you know, all the work pretty much that I've ever done. Um, You know, I've done newborn behavior and neurobehavior, because wanting to see what kinds of initial capacities infants have for social interaction. You have the NBAS, the newborn exam, um, looking at, you know, preterm infants and infants who've been exposed to drugs and how it disrupts their organization, but always continuing the studies with following them up in terms of social.
1: Yes. Well, um, you speak about, um, in the book, you say that at the time, um, just about everyone was just looking at the mother's role in interaction and that you wanted to look at the infant's role and, you know, looking back, you know, um, it, th- that seems like kind of obvious now to us, but it's just so interesting how these things evolve. Like, what, what, what was going through your mind? Were you thinking, "Wow, I could really make my mark if I shift this around and look at what the babies do," or, or, or you know, what was going through your mind?
2: Well, I don't, I don't think I was thinking I could really make my mark <laughs> it's, not, it's not kind of the way I've proceeded. <laughs> What it was, was at the Infant Center and in the laboratory where um, we, we set up a face-to-face interaction paradigm, was, it, was it, seemed, it just seemed obvious to us that the infants were engaged in the interaction. They were responding to the mother's voice or facial expressions or her movement. And I had just done that study on looming. So I knew infants could really pick up meaning about events in the world. So now we're looking at social social meaning and social events. Um, So Barry and I uh, were writing that both the infant as well as the mother, but the infant was really active in the interaction. And since I was such a hotshot experimentalist and trained again at wisconsin i was using all these statistical techniques to evaluate if i could show that the infant was reactive to the mother Mm -hmm. and a little side story on that was i at wisconsin i one of my good friends and colleagues was john gottman who does uh, research on relationship i think he's a brilliant researcher um I published a paper about interaction, and John, who had actually had a master's from MIT, read the paper, sent me a note, and said, it had to be by mail, um, sent me a note saying, Ed, you did the analysis wrong. And I'm thinking, oh, God. So he said, let's do it, and we'll, we'll republish it. And, we, and I had, in fact, done it and we did do it right, and we republished it. And it spoke to this issue of the infant reacting to what the parent was doing. But I was trained as an experimentalist that the best way to find out something is to do an experiment on it, like our random control, what we talk about now so much, the random control trial. And I was just trying to figure out a way that I could show that the infant really was responding to what the mother did. Yes. And whenever it came to me at night or in the morning or in a dream, it just became obvious to me that all I had to do was to get the mother to stop doing what she was doing and to see if the infant reacted. Because the view at that time was that the infant was kind of watching. The mother wasn't doing something that might be boring to the infant, but they wouldn't be reactive to it. Um, Whereas, given what we were saying about interaction, if the baby really was reacting to what the mother was doing, then the baby would react in particular kinds of ways, maybe even try to get the mother to react. Um, And literally, the first baby we ever ran in the procedure showed the still face. It was astonishing. Uh, I mean, it was astonishing to me. This was a baby. I actually still know the names of the baby. And if people watch um, the Netflix baby series. Yes. I'm in that first episode. And that first baby is one of the black and white videos that gets shown. In that series. Anyway, that baby looked at the mother, looked away, made a half smile at the mother, turned away again, seemed to be staying away, came back, looked at her, started to develop a sad and um, sad face, kind of an angry face. Um, Didn't get really, didn't cry or get fully distressed, but clearly just kept soliciting. soliciting the mother. And, you know, that's now viewed as um, what's called the signature, of the signature behavior of the still face. The
1: yes. Still. And, and many of our listeners, of course, are familiar with the still face. But, you know, sometimes we have folks that, that may not be or, or parents that haven't studied this in this way. So could you share with listeners exactly what it was when you did the still face?
2: well the the paradigm is um really simple uh we have uh mother and in face-to-face interaction um sort of like what we're trying to do um, yes and um we had them play in the original studies uh, the mother is doing face-to-face play with the baby for three minutes and you see very what we would see in the lab was very typical still face um, behavior. The um, mother is, um, you know, talking to the baby, doing infant infant kind of talk, the baby talk that we talk about. The baby's smiling; they're going back and forth. Um, some of the original babies were as young as five months, but some of them were like uh, four months. Of, of age. Um, and the baby and the mother get into, you know, what we talk about in terms of that dance metaphor. At least that's the way we talked about it at the time. And, you know, I revised that thinking quite a bit. But we we saw the dance, we saw the synchrony, the times mother and baby are together. And when the mother, we then asked the mother to look away and then to look back at the infant and to hold a still or frozen face. And I can say this is a reaction that you see um, in babies all the time. In fact, my grandson, age seven, or he was six at the time, with his one-year-old sister did the still face and got a still face reaction. And the reaction is a typical one, um, is that the baby very quickly, first couple three four seconds notices that the mother is not reacting so it may be in the middle of a baby smile maybe when they're looking at the mother but they look at the mother and their faces change and maybe they become one word would be they become quizzical where they become a little bit negative and they look at her and then they might smile at her but the smile is shorter is attenuated compared to their smiles when she's playing. Mm. And then they'll do a series of things. They may vocalize at her. Uh, Some of the babies will reach out with their hand to, you know, like touch the mother or to greet the mother. We're talking about, say, a four-month-old. Then typically they turn away um, and they'll stay away for five, 10, 15, 20 seconds And you think that they're just turning away. Um, and then they'll come back and they'll try again to solicit the mother. Um, they may make a negative sound. They, some of the babies will make what I've come to call, although I can't prove this, they make fake coughs to the mother. (laughs) But they're not coughing. Babies don't really cough but they're making this sound because they think it'll elicit the mother. And that goes back and forth about, oh, I'd say around a third of the babies may cry toward the end of this, and then we terminate, we end the procedure. Um, most of the babies will actually make it through the, the procedure, um, but in, for example, the second infant that we looked at, I remember this baby really clearly, too. Um, He sort of loses postural control. Mm -hmm. And is now, he's slumped over, slumped backward, like, you know, like you're grieving and really sad. And his chin is on his chest. But he still keeps looking back up at the mother and reaching with his hand just a little bit to get her to respond. And then when the still face ends, the mothers and the babies have to renegotiate the interaction. And they do renegotiate it. And they're really successful. So very quickly, almost all the infants get back into that back and forth play that they were doing before. Um, and this is this is something the still face has been used with infants as young as a month of age. There are even some reports, although I'm a little skeptical of the reports of even newborns showing a still face effect. Um, and we have a procedure that goes out to about a year. And then we have another procedure for older children. And there's also a procedure for adults. Mm-hmm. So where we, and I actually, I think this is really interesting. We have two adults, and we say one, we want one of you to think that you're a baby. You don't have to act like a baby, you just have to think like a baby. And the other, you're the mother and you're playing with the baby, you don't have to be the mother, just think that this is your baby, um, and play with each other, and then we're gonna ask you, the mother, to not respond. And we tell them both in their presence, so they know, Both of them know exactly what's going to happen before we do it. When we ask the mother to do this silk face, you see all these emotions go through the adult who's playing the infant. And when we ask them to describe their experience after it, the infant the adult infant um, uses words like, I felt panicky, I felt angry, I felt ashamed. Um, I felt like I'd done something really wrong. And on the adult side, the adult mothers are saying, oh, I felt guilty. I felt really bad. I want to apologize. And some of them do apologize to the infant. And some of them say things like, oh, he made me do it. So it's his fault, meaning me. Yes. So the critical piece of that um is that the adults know in the, know it fully and conscious, they're fully conscious and aware that we're going to have them do this. So they know what's going on. They know this is role-playing. They know it's a fake. Nonetheless, breaking that connection has this effect on both of them. And so the cognition isn't enough. This isn't happening, you know, in your frontal lobes. This is the rest of your bodily systems in terms of your reacting to what's going on. Uh, So it's, it's something that's very fundamental, I think, about human socialness and human connectedness.
1: Yes. Ah, this is such a wonderful discussion. Um, I see we're at our midway point. So uh, listeners, I hope you will join us for part two of our discussion with Dr. Tronic about the still face, all the research that ensued from it and his new book. Uh, So we will see you here again next week.
0: This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Dr. Edward Tronick on his new book, The Power of Discord, co-authored by Dr. Claudia Gold. Part two will be released on Tuesday, November 24th, and a two-part conversation with Dr. Gold will follow on December 1st and 8th. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchatik.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchatik.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.